You're listening to Tove, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hey, this is John Spiros Aved and Rebecca Rosenthal. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, John. So good to be back. I We were just talking about how this might be my last episode-specific episode. Episode-specific episode. Yeah. Yeah, we're getting toward this end. And, and I'm not sure whether the right thing to do is just to, you know, get to the end and stop or whether to throw in some more of these sort of special theme episodes or special person episodes we'll we'll see what falls into our lap all right you dreamed up this amazing idea and then we you made us do it and (laughs) here we are at this point it was such a different world when we started too i think yeah that'll be interesting to track also wow so i was going to ask you are you are you much of a facebook user in terms of like groups and not just your personal communicating a little bit groups you know definitely i'm in some groups that are much more active than others there's a lot of jewish educator groups that i use i i do lurk in some groups just for the drama which i enjoy (laughs) and so that's fun too well, I think in Good Place Universe, that definitely is like one of the things that loses us points. <laughs> the dra- Working the in a Facebook group for the drama. Yeah. For the drama, but, yeah. <laughs> and I know exactly what post to click on that will like definitely have generated a lot of completely off the wall comments. <laughs> I actually joined Facebook because of actually Jewish educators. There was some group I was a part of. Oh, 15 plus years ago. And like, that was where it was happening. So I was like, well, I didn't intend to. And as a point of pride, I actually have not changed my photo, my profile photo for uh, all those years, which I think is 14 or 15. But that's not why I asked you. There are lots of Good Place fan groups. And I don't know if you're in any of them, but but as we're recording this on May 1st of 2020, sorry, it's only 120, it's 2023. (laughs) Um, One of the groups, Good Place Shirt Posting, has been sort of lit up the last week with a bunch of Jewish-related stuff. There's a a hashtag, hashtag the Tove Place, Tove, of course, being Hebrew for good. And so it's kind of a meme group, you know, loosely, you know, people will express themselves with Good Place memes, photos that they type, whatever they type on. And uh, Jewish people and non-Jewish people have been sort of chiming in. So since it is a private group, I'm not going to like call out people by name, but there have been some interesting posts and comments, especially by, and you'll know who you are if you happen to be listening, J-K-E-B-M-T-Y-R-N-S. I might be missing someone else. So there might be multiple R's and S's, you know, with your letter of the alphabet. But it's been it's been cool to see how from the ground up, the, the Jewish discussion about the good place has been bubbling up. So so definitely you should check it out. And all our listeners should do that too, if you're into, if that's what you're using social media for. So do you want to get us into the episode, Rebecca? Give us some summary and let's go. Sure. So today's episode is You've Changed Man, written by Matt Murray, directed by Rebecca Asher, my Rebecca. Uh, Rebecca. <laughs> While the judge searches inside all the Janets for the Earth reset button, a newly confident Chidi tries to work out an alternative proposal for the afterlife. They bring to the Good Place Committee and Sean their first idea for a larger medium place where most people would go. Sean refuses, and the Good Place Committee suggests giving in more and more to his demands. With only 10 minutes left, Janet brings everyone into her void, including the judge and Timothy Oliphant. Chidi sketches out a new plan based on the group's own experiences. 
Each human will be subjected to an individualized test and rebooted as many times as they need in order to pass. In each successive reboot, they will retain not their actual memories, but a trace of what they have learned in the form of a little voice in their head. Sean refuses but relents when he realizes that even torture had become mundane and fighting with Michael was the only thing that made his existence interesting. Hmm. Any good laughs for you in this episode? So, I I mean, it just opened up with like such a good, (laughs) a good moment when they're in neutral Janet's void and the judge says, you know, all Janet voids are nothing, but this is the most nothing. (laughs) And then when they're talking about how they can convince the judge, right? She says, they say to, I guess, regular original Janet, she says, I already showed her the light and it wasn't impressed. It's probably because she was there when it was in bed. (laughs) So I thought that that was like really, really funny. There were some great, great Jason moments in this where he's talking about a Jacksonville plea bargain, which correctly involves bribing people. I thought it was sleep. It was not sleeping with the judge. Was that... I can't. Re- no, I can't remember. <laughs> and the the classic trolley problem. And then he does this whole thing. And and she's like, well, that's very wrong. But in a roundabout way, kind of right. That was really funny. Talking about this is messed up even for Florida, which in the time of this of this episode, they didn't even know how much messed up Florida could get. So, oh, yes. And I don't know if you caught this when Sean is smashing the stuff the little stand is called Joni loves tchotchkes yes i did which i thought was so funny <laughs> and then i realized i didn't know how to spell tchotchkes and i like didn't want to go back and figure that out but i'm the only one who's going to see that so yeah and then referring to the bigger medium place as your own personal cincinnati i'm sorry cincinnati people i know how you love cincinnati but that was pretty funny yeah, that was. And I have family in Cincinnati, so I felt bad for that. I don't know if that was a Cincinnati-specific dig or Ohio, which has sometimes been described as the essence focal point of America, because it's sort of in the middle of everything. But I don't know, Cincinnati. Well, I think people, that... people from Cincinnati are very, they do love Cincinnati. A number of my friends who live there really, really do love it. It does seem like a, a great place. <laughs> this whole like uh, disco-ish well, theme I thought was also interesting too, given who I imagine the Good Place audience is. I have to say, like, my kids have no idea what disco is. And I think they think Disco Janet is funny, but they have no idea why. <laughs> they recognize the song Funky Town, which I don't know if that's technically disco, but maybe just from the, the right era. <laughs> that's funny. I I don't know. Disco Janet's funny anyway, but especially yeah. when the judge is in there. I mean, Raya Rudolph is just incredibly funny and talented. And she's great as the judge and her love of Justified and Timothy Oliphant. I forgot about that. That was pretty good. <laughs> that was quite a thing. Do you, I'm not really that up on them and Timothy Oliphant, who I recognize, but I don't think I could like, do you, do you have a connection to him? I've never seen the show, but I, I know about it. And so it's just kind of random, right? She's the judge of all the universe and she's about to wipe out humanity. And she's really into this one show that she's been watching. <laughs> It's like when you find out really serious people also love like Real Housewives or something, (laughs) right? It's like that. And it's just, it seems sort of out of character. And so it's just funny. Yes, it is. Now, there was a little thing in there about Dr. Ruth, uh, that being Dr. Ruth Westheimer. When you were at, at JTS at the seminary, did you get to meet her? I have actually met her at Central because she comes around here every once in a while. I think I probably also met her at JTS. 
but just the image of Dr. Ruth, LeBron James, and Bruno Mars together and performing a tracheotomy and winning multiple <laughs> Grammys. I love that. And then Eleanor's like, actually, I would like to hear that story. Yeah. As would I. We'd all like to hear that story. But it's just like they had some kind of dartboard and they were like, what would be extra funny? And they came up with three random things, three <laughs> random celebrities and three random things. I think that's three random people thing. It's like a setup for a joke that almost never loses. You got your priest, your minister, and a rabbi or whatever. And But this is even better. I would definitely swap my place out for LeBron James anytime. There, I mentioned Dr. Ruth because at, at, at the seminary in our senior seminar, when they were talking, I think they were afraid we would go out into the real world and not know about real people. <laughs> exactly. And so they actually brought her in to talk about the rabbi's role in counseling people about sex. And she she quoted a, a lovely Hasidic teaching about it and or Hasidic and Talmudic stuff. And, and it was a delightful hour that we got to spend with her. Completely appropriate, I think, in every Maybe way. Maybe that's what she was talking to LeBron and Bruno Mars about. You know, he wasn't there, but they weren't they weren't there. I'm not sure Bruno Mars was born when I when I was in rabbinical school. <laughs> I, I can we can suggest to the deans of JTS that when if they bring in Dr. Ruth that they also bring in LeBron James and Bruno Mars and just you know, see what happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, I thought it was a great Sean episode, in addition to being, as you say, a great Jason episode. And even the way he says, you know, new ideas are gross. They sicken me. There's something about his like radio voice that really got me. And and then his sort of cogitations about how life will be different if he's not torturing as many people when they offer to give themselves up as the price of his accepting their initial plan. On the one hand, I would love to get some spiders in those buttholes. On the other hand, there would be billions of buttholes going completely unspidered. And I have millions of lava monsters down there who will be out of a job. I ask you, into whose throats are they supposed to pour lava? I just love that into whose, that, you know, proper grammatical. Or And you must have, oh, did you catch his other line, you education director? You corkscrew your first eyeball. You're like, man, I can't believe they're paying me to do this. By the trillionth, it's like, I should have just been a teacher. <laughs> Yes, I did. I caught that. I did not write that down. Uh, but, you know, I was thinking about the piece about how he says, like, well, I could take the four of you, but then there'd be so many people left. And you know the story about the starfish? Yes. Somebody's walking on the beach and there's all these starfish that wash up on the beach and they start. This is the opposite moral, but it's, opposite. it's moral, but it's the opposite <laughs> way of looking at it. And the kid starts throwing back the starfish and the parent says, what are you doing? You couldn't possibly save all those starfish. And the kid says, well, but I'm going to make a difference to that one starfish. Mm -hmm. And so it's a little bit the same where he's like, should I trade the many for the few? If the few will, you know, get, get more, I'll get more out of it with the few. Although I don't know, I think on, on Sean's philosophy, after you, you know, put a, a few spiders in their, in their buttholes, it probably is not as exciting. There's a diminishing return of... <laughs> <laughs> truly, truly. That's the opposite of the LeBron, Dr. Ruth thing, too, is that that's a joke. That's a line they've worked in like almost every season. The the scribble scrabble thing back and <laughs> did you really write my idea down, which I certainly have done in different settings where and sometimes with kids where like it's not a serious thing and uh, you want to give the impression that you wrote down what someone said, even though you have no uh, no intention of actually considering it. And I love how Jason calls that out. I'm sure that's happened to him before. You didn't really write down. And then that particular thing, did you did you actually write it down or did you just do a scribble scrabble 
kind of caught me. And I, on the official podcast, the writer here, Matt Murray, Matt said Matt. that he that he caught that that got that scribble scrabble locution from his, uh, I think he said maybe seven-year-old son, who I'm sure doesn't say locution. And I just remember having a friend of ours, their daughter, when our kids were little, like in three or four, talk about some drawing as just a scribble-scrabble. So I just love that very specific little preschool. But also that's like such a parenting trick where you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm listening. I'm totally absorbed in your story about Lego, Minecraft, Star Wars, the last four hours. I, I have absorbed every detail. Right. But then they like they test you and they're like, what was the name of that guy on that planet you know, that I told you about four months ago? And you're like, trouble. Wow. My kids aren't nearly that. I nearly that gotcha. <laughs> I want to meet your kids. They're going to be excellent lawyers. It sounds like. Yeah, they're really they would like you to absorb every word that they have ever said. Hmm. So uh, I think that you and I attacked this episode from a couple of different directions. So why don't you lead us in? Yeah, so there were two moments that I think anyone who watches this episode will, it'll be clear what the main philosophical moments of the episode are. The first was this discussion that Chidi has about the cruelty of the punishment doesn't match the cruelty of the life lived. And that whether you were a little bit bad or a lot bad, you kind of get tortured for eternity. So that's one piece. And then, and then Eleanor says like, yes, this is about justice. And he's like, oh, that's so sexy. But then the second piece was that Chidi talks about the fact that it's final, that there's no chance for redemption and there's no chance, there's no way to give humans a fighting chance within the system. So look, both of these things are true about our criminal justice system too. And you could have someone who's more expert in criminal justice here to talk about it. But you hear all the time of stories. There's a very famous one about a child, you know, 17 year old child who died in Rikers for stealing a backpack because he mm. couldn't afford bail, right? And just how incredibly cruel that is and the ways in which we don't in any way set up our justice system so that people can be redeemed. We punish them and then when they get out, they have fines and parole and all kinds of other things that they have to work on. People can't vote in a number of states and it's hard for people to get jobs. We do not seem to, in the American criminal justice system, believe in either redemption or balancing the cruelty of the punishment mm. to the to the crime. And, and you see that so much in the war on drugs, in particular with mandatory minimums and other things. Like it's just, it's just we throw people away for life. And even if they get out of prison, like we've thrown away most of their lives because of the way our justice system is set up. So that's my the justice system is broken. So Fox, and I think there's plenty of good Jewish reasons to get involved in criminal justice reform. And actually, mm -hmm. Central Synagogue, where I work, is very involved in different aspects of criminal justice reform. But and we will, and we should throw those into the show notes. So throw them into the show notes. Yeah. And if you know Rabbi Heli Haber, she's the person who leads our criminal justice mm. work with really such like moral clarity and beautiful Torah and. She, I'm sure, would have a lot to say about this episode. I don't know if she's a fan of The Good Place or not. Mm -hmm. But I think the other piece is that if you look in our Jewish sacred texts, there is so much in the Talmud in particular about how to be sure that the punishment fits the crime. And they spend pages and pages and pages. I couldn't even bring you one text because mm. there are so many out there where they're like, okay, your hand got hurt. What is your job? Does your job involve doing things with your hand? Well, then you should get paid more money and damages because you also can't do your job. 
But if it doesn't involve that, then you get paid less money. And they even ask questions like, are you a very sensitive person? And are you very sensitive to pain? And maybe it hurt you more than it hurt me to have your hand or your arm or whatever be injured. And the rabbis try really, really hard to understand the value of your pain so they can enact an appropriate punishment. They seem to care a lot, actually, about not making the punishment more cruel than the crime. And even, I think this has been discussed on this podcast before, even in cases of death penalty, the rabbis basically talk it out of existence because they Mm. see the death penalty as being sort of the ultimate cruelty, the ultimate thing you can't get back. And, And they even say, like, better a thousand guilty people go free than you execute one innocent person. And so... I think the Talmud is really the opposite of the system that that Chidi's describing. This sort of like we we really really try hard to make the punishment fit the crime. So you're saying the Talmud is the opposite of Chidi's critique of the bad place of the current yes. bad place. Yes. That is so interesting. I'm going to have something in a few minutes to say about your construal of the Talmud, which I totally hadn't thought about. But what also you're making me think about how much the Talmudic calibration does have to do with also the victim, it sounds like. And that's one of the things that I've sort of lost track of, I think, in the in the descriptions of how bad people are. I guess we've had Brent. It seems like we haven't dealt with Brent in like a million years, who obviously his victims were probably all his co-workers and particularly women and people of color. And so I think we've sort of established that. But in terms of like our core cast, Jason's thing here, you know, what makes what's messed up even for Florida is trying to paint a Taco Bell logo on a snapping turtle. I'm not sure how the Talmud would sort of account for the snapping turtles thing. But and I guess, you know, and even Chidi's like, I drank almond milk thing is sort of, it's not that it's at all, he doesn't think it's a victimless crime. He just doesn't know who the victims are, I guess. Some of their flaws are not actually because of specific like wrongs that they did. And that's interesting, because we never we don't even hear about points always described in terms of a bad thing you did to other people, but just how like how odious you were as a, as a person to be around. Although Eleanor, I guess, you know, was the one who definitely defrauded old people and and the whole T-shirt thing. Yeah. yeah, I also wonder, you know, thinking about the almond milk thing, right? Almonds take a lot of resources from the planet, hmm. obviously, and like that's bad in in sort of sort of large abstract way, but like punching someone in the face is bad in a very concrete, you can understand who the victim is and what their pain is and you can talk to them, right? You can't exactly figure out what what is the monetary value of drinking almond milk. Yeah, and who are you going to pay it back to even if you could do it? Although we have the wonderful model and again, to call out some other of our rabbinic colleagues of the the tomato rabbis in Shura, who haven't exactly figured out a way to directly compensate the victims of some of the horrible human trafficking and slave conditions that have been in the tomato picking industry, but who at least lobbied that we should then pay it forward and that we should be willing to pay more for tomatoes in order to help the next group of people who are pickers. So I guess that's one way it could it could work. But it's interesting, Chidi's system that he comes up with does not talk about making restitution at all. It talks about improving yourself. And I'm just I'm just chewing on that as you. That's not something you get a chance necessarily to go back to, although it sounds like, and we'll see this later on in the next episode, that the test that you that you take in this new system will probably put you in a situation where you have the chance in sort of a simulation maybe to to act differently towards someone who you knew on Earth. 
it's it's interesting as you're saying that to think about like earth being now the first draft there's actually nothing you can do about your time on earth in the new system you actually can't go back and write your wrongs or pay restitution or just like i mean i guess it depends what the tests are like but right. it would be very confusing earth if like people kept coming back and trying again yes. like, i mean under, i mean look jeremy bear me and everything else but like everyone would have to live in their own reality it would be very complicated <laughs> yeah but I guess that's one flaw potentially in Chidi's plan is that it's so individual to you and your experience. And it it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to repair whatever damage you did on Earth. Even if Chidi in the afterlife only drinks oat milk or whatever kind of milk <laughs> is best for the Earth, he still will have done damage in some way to Earth. But maybe like that's the Jeremy Baramy of it. And like, we're just not meant to understand. I'm not sure. But it's an interesting question to ask. Yeah, you know, I've, I've been thinking a lot about how in this system, there's suffering that's punishment. And, and that's this this thing about the Judas Schlar essay, that it's cruel to be punished, and it's cruel to suffer beyond what you should. Um, and, you know, we can sort of take on ourselves the thought that, okay, I should suffer as a consequence, or I should somehow suffer as a as a way of paying back or feeling what it is that I did. But often the suffering that's what greater is this is the suffering that we cause to other people. And, and my process of learning, however long my process of learning takes, means that you have to suffer longer while I learn. And yeah, that's, that's rough. Hmm. So can I move on to the other piece? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, right, which is this, the the solution that they propose to the problem of the ultimate cruelty of the current system, which is a chance for humans to be redeemed and give them a fighting chance and let them live their lives over and over again. And as we were preparing for this podcast, I was thinking about Yom Kippur as the Jewish version of this. And you know how I feel about Yom Kippur, that it's like this great happy dance party day, right? That, yeah. Yeah. Because it's actually our chance to do it again. And we get to do it again with all the memories that we have had up until now, right? We don't even get our memory erased. We actually get to start again in some way with all the memories that we have. And it's it's very hard because like you're not getting help from demons and Michael and the judge and anyone else to sort of give you a clean slate. You have to give your you have to get yourself wow. to the clean slate place. But that's what Yom Kippur is supposed to be. Yom Kippur is supposed to be like, let's do it again. And we're going to do it better this time. I think that's a lot of why Judaism is so interested in cycles, because there's nowhere to get off the train, essentially, <laughs> right? You just keep going until you figure out how to do it better. And and some of us, you know, live long lives and change and grow and improve and get to be better people by the end. And some of us either don't take that opportunity and still live long lives or don't get that opportunity. But Yom Kippur really, I think, serves as a version of what Shady is proposing. That's so interesting. Because so what you're saying is that we and Yom Kippur ideally kind of design our own simulation or de design our own personalized reality. And on it, we project it on a I want to say a green screen. We're supposed to dress in white. So I guess we projected on a white screen of ourselves and the people around us. And that's cool. I think the one way in which maybe it does track is that in a way what Chidi is saying is like, there are people on earth who are good, like they did good enough and they're going to pass the first time. And they probably did this kind of 
recollecting and reflecting and working on themselves. But then everybody else has this other option, which is to go back and do it again. But you're saying this kind of, there is sort of a third option, which is that people who might not naturally be, I mean, people who are also, I mean, I, I mean, I think people use who are introspective and reflective do use Yom Kippur that way, but that if you're sort of moderately so, or maybe not, if you do bump into Yom Kippur, it might help you do that while you're on earth still and might over time, especially if you get lucky enough to live long enough through a number of iterations of that, then you get to do that on earth. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is, apparently this is Rebecca's soapbox episode, but this idea that Yom Kippur only works if you do all the prep and everything leading up to it, right? You're supposed to go ask forgiveness from people beforehand. You're supposed to sort of like figure out your deal beforehand because Yom Kippur actually is, that's the studying and this is the test, right? Yom Kippur is like the, can you do it better? Okay, now prove it. Let's let's see what's going to happen. And, you know, there's all of this beautiful rabbinic literature about the idea that and Sharon Browse, Rabbi Sharon Browse teaches about this very beautifully. And and also Rabbi Alan Liu in the best Thai holiday book, This is Real, and You Are Completely Under mm-hmm. uh, Unprepared, which is also the title of life. They, you know, teach about this idea that on Yom Kippur is when you make all of the promises and you say you're going to be better and you think about all the things you could do better. And then what you're supposed to do immediately after eating your bagel after the fast of Yom Kippur is to start building the sukkah, the hut. For the holiday of Sukkot, right? And and that that is a symbol of the movement from saying what you're going to do better to doing what you're going to do better, right? That when you literally take us, okay, I'm, I live in New York City. I don't have a backyard. I've never built <laughs> Sukkot, but presumably you stick something in the ground, right? Like, and <laughs> the, the only Sukkot I ever had was a, like one of those pop-up things. And it was in our trash can area in our apartment in LA. There was no ground. It was just cement, um, but it was a great Sukkot. But you, you know, you put something in the ground and you say, like, not only did I decide, did I think about doing better? I'm actually going to do better now, right? I've, I've, I'm going to hold both of those pieces of the discussion. So now I'm at a place where I, I, I need like a blackboard in back of me in order to like <laughs> keep track of like the three thoughts I'm having, which are like PD. pieces of a puzzle. Yes, definitely. So on the or one hand, Janet, one or the other. Got, yes, yes. I got all my. Janet, boop, give me, I need a blackboard. So on the one hand, it like, it's all back to our, you know, original Maimonides thing that chuva is when you go back to that situation and you get to do it again. It really is like if you could conjure. And I think the way Maimonides says this is it doesn't have to be exactly the same. It's a personalized test based on things you've actually done before. You don't actually go back to the same situation. And that is the test that you do something different. And, and I've been sort of loving that idea as it is really the ultimate test. But then through actually really since like, since we got to like Jeremy Baramy, I've been thinking about this issue of memory, which is that our memories just aren't that good. Like even if I really want to on Yom Kippur, try to reconstruct all the, the things I wish I could go clean up or return to, like I don't remember them all. And and the nice thing about this acknowledgement in, in Chidi's system is the assumption is that you're not gonna you're not gonna remember in detail. You're gonna remember just enough or some kind of trace. You won't even remember why you have this this voice in your head, but you just uh, you'll just remember the sense of you know what what doing better in that kind of situation is, which I feel like is a very compassionate way to think about memory. Uh, there's some amazing stuff in the work of Daniel Kahneman, who I think we talk about a lot, the Israeli Nobel Prize winning psychologist who tells us how a lot of the things we think about our intentional minds are just 
football shirt. And, and he talks about, I think as a statistic, like if you take a week long vacation somewhere and it's like amazing that in the whole rest of your life, if you aggregate the amount of time you spend like remembering it, it'll be like seven minutes or something like that. We have a poor sense of our own ability to remember remember things. But then I mean that's part of why there's a whole discussion of eyewitness testimony in in both the Talmud and in our modern criminal justice system and sort of the unreliability of of eyewitness testimony and the way in which we see things, especially in a traumatic moment if you're witnessing like a crime or something really bad, that actually we're terrible at, at remembering things. Like we remember the senses and we remember you know, we remember a little bit about like what we saw, but we do not in any way hold on to the details. Yeah. And so what I was going to say is like the third piece on my blackboard is that one thing that Yom Kippur and also Rosh Hashanah does is it talks to us about that our memories are worth remembering even when we don't remember them. And we have this prayer which talks about the divine looking at all our memories. And it's kind of like the uh, the book in a, in the accounting department, I guess, in Neutral Janet's and uh, Matt, the accountant's place, where where they've got everything. But instead of it being coded with a numerical value and every new thing we did that no one ever else did before, <laughs> it gets its own val- point value assigned to it. It's actually basically in our handwriting. And I always I often think about that as well. First choice is maybe that concentration on that prayer moment will help me remember things that I forgot during the year that are actually worth remembering, either because they were good and I forgot how good I was or they were bad and I need to go back. Or it's sort of at least an encouragement that that's like deposited somewhere. And that maybe that reminds me of Chidi's sort of like, the memory is worth having been recorded, even if we can't access it in its in its original data set. And so I kind of I kind of like how well, that isn't all, that, that the whole purpose of almost everything we do in, in Jewish life. We read the story from the Torah every single year because mm-hmm. like we're concerned we might forget about it, right? We have the Passover Seder and we're supposed to pretend like we were there in Egypt, like we remember it, right? We're, we're counting now towards Shavuot, which is the holiday about the giving of the Torah. And the rabbis teach that we were all there, every Jew. Every Jew across time, we're there. But, you know, do you remember it? And and the whole holiday, all the holidays and the cycles, I think, are designed to sort of remind us that these are our memories, too, even when we forgot. Yeah, so I think that balance between like constantly being reminded reminded to remember and being unable to is a, is a theme that I have actually been thinking about because of this show, especially as we go through these days in the, the Jewish year, in addition to the ones you mentioned, Yom HaZikaron, Memorial Day for Israel, and just what like what are we remembering, even good things, independence in Israel, and that we don't have all the, the details. And in that sense, I really like Chidi's way out. And it also made me think about how, you know, so Chidi recently got all his memories back, and it gave him this sense of clarity and confidence. And he had to have all the memories of his life and all of his Baramis and stuff and his reboots, you know, put in. So he's got that. As opposed to Jason, a number of episodes ago, I guess, in the in the prior season, who uh, he got all his memories back and he, like, forgot them all <laughs> immediately when they were on that little train thingy going to rescue Janet. <laughs> he's like, wait, can you do that again? <laughs> <laughs> and then we see that, like, he, he in this process, enough gets through to him that he is actually able to learn, <laughs> even without really remembering. Um, the the yeah. funny thing about Jason is he has actually a lot of very detailed, intact memories that he seems to learn nothing from at any time. Yeah. 
nothing. I, I mean, one of the other, we haven't talked about this, but one of the other favorite things is he was like, I was once in jail for stealing a hot dog. Okay, it was a hot dog shaped car. I stole a wiener mobile. First of all, he's hilarious. And yeah. second of all, like he has all of these memories. He knows all the things that he did in, in life. And he knows most of them weren't awesome. But yet he doesn't seem to use his memories in the way that Chidi is, is imagining, right? He more absorbs the lessons from Chidi or from the sort of mm. being part of the collective group that he does from getting any chance to relive or rethink his memories. Yeah, you know, I've been a lot lately down this rabbit hole. I don't think it's actually a rabbit hole kind of about who we are and are we constituted by all our memories or do we have to be the person who has that train of awarenesses of everything from the first thing we could remember till now, you know, or or not, you know, both because there might be either again, normal garden variety things we just don't remember, or this variation between as exactly how you're pointing out, Jason, or for that matter, you know, traumatic memories, God forbid, which probably it's better not to have to constantly have access to them and and or at least to relive them in quite that quite that same way. Our relationship to our memories are to each of our memories or types of memories is going to be different and and how that plays in. And I think what Chidi has done is say like it's not a failure actually to not be able to account for every moment in your life. It would be a failure if you didn't learn from them, you know, sufficiently. And and maybe there are different patterns of 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 connecting to your memories. I mean, there's no way that Jason even thousands of Baramis from now can really be Jason without having been Jacksonville Jason. But even at the end, like in the finale, when he has that long time of peaceful moments and Janet says to him, something like, you know, you sound like a, like a monk. And he's like, what are you talking about? He doesn't know, didn't remember that he was once play acting as a, as a Buddhist monk. And, and that would have been a good thing. Sorry, it's meandering around there. I love this idea of trying to figure out what the relationship of us and our our memories and how that how having that relation to that both you know constitutes us but also helps us be accountable hmm. i didn't say that quite perfectly because the other thing i think that chidi is doing is saying that ultimately you're not being measured up against i guess your memories are serving your ethical development right it's not it's not important that tahani exactly as she will in the next episode you know deals with her sister and her parents like that's that's not the only test but that just might be an emblematic test because it's because it's present for her. But if she's a good person, maybe just being able to pull off the mod look we, you know, would be good enough. Yeah, that was great. Also, I'm sure Tony can pull off a mod look. She actually <laughs> has a like, pretty good look for it. Well, you said about the Talmud kind of caught me in an interesting way because I was trying to think about like when it comes to the big picture of judgment versus learning, you know, is, is existence a lifelong learning and growing process or is it a process fundamentally about judgment and where there's kind of an end point and you're sent to whichever of the places. And, you know, well, on the one hand, thinking that Judaism is not a big heaven and hell religion, it still seems to me the case that, you know, both of these things are very much part of, if we zoom like way out, feel like, I think a lot of people would say are part of the ethos of 
Judaism and Jewish communities. No question that that learning is a very core value and 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 core practice and and everything in terms of just you know how how we put the Torah and its study in the middle of everything. But also people talk about Jews as being very judgy and Jewish communities as being very judgy kinds of places at at their worst certainly, but sometimes at their normal. But the other thing that I thought about is that much as we might want to push that sort of heaven hell thing off to the Christians and say well they did that to to biblical religion, you know the Torah has a lot of this world judgment in it. The Torah and the Hebrew Bible, they've got a lot to say, you know, because they're sort of organized. A lot of the Bible is around this story of not individual punishment, but the collective destiny and punishments of the Jewish people. And so, you know, in the Torah, Moses teaches a lot of teachings and also says, you know, let me tell you what's going to happen if slash when you guys as a group get it wrong. And it's grisly. I think Sean would love the later chapters of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. What I was saying really (laughs) was about a formal justice system. Yeah. more like it was maybe a little bit too general but no 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 you're right you're right about, i was gonna in yeah. a formal justice system they're very concerned about that but you're right like there's a lot of punishments and grisly disgusting curses we're coming up on that tour portion very soon in the next few weeks and all kinds of sean things that are gonna <laughs> happen to us and and if we disobey god right and, and in one sense it's very black and white where you have like if you do this bad thing this bad thing will happen to you if you do this other bad thing another bad thing will happen to you but as i always discuss with my students when we come around to this parsha right we know that that's not exactly how the world works right our world is not set up for systems of if you do this this bad thing will happen to you immediately and if you do this good thing this good thing will happen to you immediately yeah, yeah. It's at the same time, I think what happens is that that stuff is real. And, you know, it played out in the early history. So the prophets do basically say, hey, we can point to that stuff in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and all those curses. And like, it's true, you guys as a people went off the rails. And this would happen to you, you suffered, you know, grisly wars, and you were exiled. But then at the same time, I think about about two things. One is, So my teacher, Rabbi Gordon Tucker, said that the book of Deuteronomy is so interesting because it has these two things. On the one hand, it's got got some of those statements with some of the grisly, Sean-like punishments in it. But also, right after that is where it introduces the idea of tshuva. Even after all that, it says there's no amount of cursing, curse and suffering that could happen to you collectively and even individually that you somehow can't come back or that that the divine doesn't want to bring you back from. And that that same, you know, Deuteronomy in particular, if you anybody reads it from cover to cover, is also kind of the Torah's big statement about learning and about and about dedicating yourself to to that. And I think about a about mitzvah in our synagogue, I, I can call her out not by initial, but by name. Her name was Sarah Kolopsky. And at the age of 13, she took this paragraph in our prayers, the, what we call the second paragraph of the Shema, the Shema being one of our central prayers, and it's made up of a few passages in the Bible. And it's, you know, some people, and I, I go through times where I don't want to read it either, because it sort of encapsulates this reward punishment thing. If you do this, you'll get the rains. And if you don't do that, I'm going to dry up the sky and you guys will definitely perish. And then it concludes with, uh, it moves into this statement about, therefore, you should talk about these words of Torah all the time, and you should wear them uh, on your arms and on your head, and you should write them on your doorposts and all that. And Sarah said, well, this is the deal, that that a God who is going to threaten you with all those punishments has an obligation to make sure that you actually learn 
such that you'll never have to suffer those things and that you can't possibly. I know. I was like, whoa, you know, and with her permission, I'll post her about Mitzvah Devartara in her own words. I just thought that was a great connection between two things that didn't seem to go together. And what I was tying back was you were talking about the Talmud is I thought, well, the Talmud seems like the opposite of the Bible in that way, because it is so much. It is the book of learning. Talmud, you know, means learning. And then I loved how you brought it back the other way and said, well, even in that book, they talk about the the careful calibration of punishments and consequences. And I'm thinking to something I, you know, where where the Talmud even looks at at things that aren't like court punishments, but looks at at what some people take to be divine punishments and say, you know, which things seem like they really are and which seems thing seems like, no, that can't possibly be. That's a suffering, but it's not a punishment. Uh, and at the same time, then I wonder, I went down, I very quickly and badly, you know, bad intellectual modeling, I gave a quick read to this essay of Judith Schlar's that is referenced in the episode. It's very short, 14 pages or so about the cruelty. But it talked really about how cruelty is a lot of times the product of of power. People have said that a lot of what has enabled the Jewish tradition to develop these compassionate tendencies is that for a couple thousand years, we didn't have any power, which is not entirely true, because I think we had power to govern our own local communities. But we didn't have the kind of political power that could really inflict some of the punishment harms that, that you were talking about earlier. And it has made me wonder, Jews participate in in power systems today, you know, including the justice system that you're talking about here, and of course in in Israel too. And what's neat, I think, in the good place is that Chidi talks about, you know, Chidi's an intellectual, and he says, "I'm just the ideas guy." You know, I love that's a great last line. But Michael and Sean, who are gonna have the power, it's cool the idea that they would buy into it and say that, like the cruelty, Michael, who's been converted long ago, the cruelty. It seemed like exciting early in my career to be able to pull that off, but he got there earlier and Sean is now at this, you know, like it's just not whatever. And in that essay by Professor Schlar, she really talks about how initially political leaders or even religious leaders would use that and they would, you know, it would somehow make them think like they were God's messengers, but but it was so detached, obviously, from all reality. And these people who are godlike now are going to buy into this calibration that you were talking about, which I really like. Well, the thing about Chidi being an ideas man, I don't know. I just came up with the idea. Now you, Mark and Sean, you have to execute it. And and Mark and Sean's relationship is so interesting because, you know, they were colleagues and then they were kind of (laughs) at each other's throats. And now they have to go back to being colleagues again and colleagues in a completely different context. I mean, you could probably do a whole thing about the good place as a workplace drama, but um, (laughs) that's for somebody else's podcast. But to bring it back to Judaism a little bit, right? We have this like study and action thing, right? You can't just come up with the ideas. You actually also have to figure out how to make them happen. And you can't just go around studying everything all the time. You have to be the person who puts your studies into action. Otherwise, like, what's the point? You can't just be the cheaty who's going to like read all day, right? You have to also be the new GD who's going to help execute. The other thing that you said before in pointing out a bit of a kind of duality in this whole scheme was about the point in time but judgment versus the the learning process, which I really liked and and was thinking about that as sort of potentially a contrast between the Torah with all its, you know, scary punishments, you know, is said as a journey of a group of people moving forward from slavery to freedom and settling in their land and all of that. And the Talmud isn't like that. The Talmud is kind of a Mobius strip that just kind of bends back on itself and where it's really all about the moment. And and I think Chidi is trying to, in some ways, square that circle and say that it's wrong to sort of pin all of a human's 
travel and journey in their life on a moment, even if that moment is kind of the last moment or the sum of all their moments. And one of the yeah. things I don't think the good place really ever deals with, right, is that all four of our main characters have met a sort of untimely death. None of them are 95 year olds who die in their yeah. sleep. They all have died in some kind of dramatic fashion and they're all relatively young. Probably, I mean, you and I know this from our work, they have left behind some kind of like trauma for the people mm. that loved them, right? Mm. All of them dying in like a young and unexpected kind of way. And I guess the idea that they may feel like they have more unfinished business than people who either were prepared in some way for their death, they were sick, they knew that they were going to die in some fashion, or people who were older, those kinds of things, they may feel more urgency around the question of like, how do we solve this problem? Because they feel like they have more unfinished business on earth. I don't know. I don't know if they feel that way or not. But it was something that struck me, which is like, that we never actually really spend a lot of time reckoning with that piece of how they died. That's interesting. And and if I were to propose one revision to Chidi's proposal now based, like literally I'm thinking of it the second, it's to do like the season three thing where they actually get to go back on earth and save somebody else's life or eternal soul as kind of a part of their thing. That would be that would be a neat thing to have incorporated in. So that would sort of address also what we were talking about earlier in terms of this being all very individualized and all that, you know, Donna Shellstrop and... Camilla and everything. That would be a cool, a cool thing. You have to go back and repair the one unrepaired relationship in your life before you can come back for, for the next test. That's I'm going to recommend that to Chidi. <laughs> What'd you say? It's the good place, the sequel. You know, they're, they're like rebooting all these television shows in 10 years when they decide to reboot the good place. That's where it can be. That sounds good. It can be as they should be. There should be a few of them. There should be one where they're all yes in their nineties, and there should be a good place babies where they're all where they're all babies. That seems to be what they do with a lot of those, at least in animated. Isn't there like Star Wars babies? I don't know, Baby Yoda. Everybody I'm has babies gonna, now. Yeah. <laughs> babies for everyone. Can I just add one more thing, which is where Janet refers to herself early versions of Janet as a palm pilot in a cool vest. I forgot to put that in at the beginning when we were talking about it. But first of all, I had a Palm Pilot and I loved it so much and it was great. And I just felt like awesome because I had a Palm Pilot. So that was great. The funny thing is, I i mean, I use my phone all the time, but for like organizing and calendar things, I vastly prefer paper. I like to see everything and be able to write notes and everything. So I've come back, I've come full circle back around to the beginning of paper, but, and Sari, our, our other co-host occasional of this podcast, she loves paper planners. So don't get her started on that. But, you know, I think that was just like such a, it's such a great reference. And it's, I, I mean, I don't know how long Pine Pilots actually existed, but they feel like they existed for a very short period of time. It's like for a very specific group of people. <laughs> I know I was definitely a Palm. It was already not even called Palm Pilot anymore when I had mine. And I tried to reboot mine the other day by plugging it in. And it's, I don't know, the battery yeah, it's is It's because dead. it's been marbleized by the judge. And <laughs> You cannot and, it anymore. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I love that the idea that that like you know newfangled technology is now considered like an ancient thing. And it was I love that the disco Janet turned into one of those little mirror ball marbles. Oh yeah, that was great. A disco ball, if you will. A disco ball, indeed. Indeed, yes. Took me back. 
<laughs> the other thing that we didn't talk about, but that I thought was really funny was that Sean is like, I'm going to write an evil speech and it's going to be really, really long. And I just <laughs> thought about what people say about rabbi's servants. You could be saying such brilliant things. And at some point people are like, rabbi, your servant is too long. <laughs> we all ha- we all have a little Sean in us. Oh, indeed, indeed. And I love how he, when his audience, Michael, was not giving him back what he needed, it totally threw him. I mean, that's such a good parenting technique, too, as long as we're talking about it, which is like <laughs> when you kind of go right at your child and, and you're having this argument, 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 especially if maybe your children are perfect, non-stubborn, <laughs> but mine are extremely stubborn and you can't win. Like you can't win an argument. But when you stop kind of giving them that piece, then they're like, what can I do to get your attention? Maybe I should clean the, maybe I should clean my room. Maybe I should help with dinner. <laughs> it's a little bit of that too, which is the parenting technique by Michael. I don't know. Maybe he has like a million demon children and that's how he's <laughs> Well, this is great to talk to you as always. And we will be back in some fashion to wrap up the I season. Know, and I know. And I just want to thank you for thinking up this idea and like being on top of all of us and making us do it it's not that easy to wrangle this many rabbis and other people and i just am super impressed i love listening to my colleagues it gives me like a whole different view on them and their thoughts and their work so i thank you for that well no thank you because this part in do not edit it out yeah yeah we really talked about this project and how we would do it and i think all launched in without any clear sense of how we do anything other than begin it and it's been phenomenal how it has spiraled and and i think one of the things we'll do in one of our final things i'm sure will be each of us to give our or not our last to give a to give a concluding ish reflection about what we've gotten from that so thank you rebecca and we'll talk again soon we'll talk again soon and that's all for another installment of tove It was Muppet Babies I was trying to remember. But more importantly, thank you for listening. And you can help us find other people intrigued by The Good Place in Judaism by subscribing, giving us a good rating, or mentioning us to people you know or on social media. We're there, at Tove Good Place. And you can comment or correspond with any of our co-hosts that way or by emailing to tove at tovegoodplace.com. We've got show notes for the episode on our website, tovegoodplace.com, along with other helpful links and a lexicon of our Jewish lingo. Rebecca Rosenthal is on Instagram, at Rabbi Rebecca Bakes. And I'm John Spirasavet, at RabbiJS3, on Instagram and Twitter, and also at RabbiJohn.net. We welcome you to our communities as well, where we've got on-site and virtual goings-on all the time, at Central Synagogue in Manhattan and Temple Beth Abraham in New Hampshire. Thanks so much for listening. And to repurpose the sign-off you might remember from the official Good Place podcast, now go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.